Morning, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 1. I'm gonna, just going to start right away by praying once more because that's like kind of what we do around here at church is pray. So um, let me just pray again and ask the Spirit uh, to teach us. Lord, as we open up the scriptures and um, tune our, our minds and our hearts to, to receive, we pray by the power of your spirit that you would teach us and then move us toward your image closer and closer into your likeness, God. Uh, I, I pray by your spirit you would open up eyes and do what I, I, can't, I can't do, God, in, in the, the limited words that I have. Go beyond those things, Lord, and minister, speak, um, heal our hearts, um, physically heal us, God, set right. When your kingdom comes, would you set right things that are not right? I pray this uh, in your name and for your glory. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Amen. Last week, we began uh, an in-depth series on the Holy Spirit we are calling the Empowering Presence. And my hope is that that title of the series makes more sense by the end of today. Last week we learned that the Holy Spirit, as it pertains to the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, the Old Testament was an age of visitation, if you remember from last week. The Old Testament was an age, concerning the Holy Spirit, was an age of visitation, but the New Testament is an age of habitation, where the Spirit of the living God lives in us. And we traced that theme through the Old Testament into the New Testament with Jesus and saw how completely dependent Jesus was upon the Holy Spirit and how at the end of his ministry, he told his disciples that the Holy Spirit is, um, the Holy Spirit living in you is actually better than me living physically with you. He says, it's better that I go away because if I go away, the Spirit of God can live in you and, and I won't leave you as orphans. He will come to you and he'll live in you. And now through the cross, Jesus ushered in the age of the Spirit, where the Spirit of the living God comes to live in the redeemed children of God. This is all really, really, really important stuff. If you were not here last week, we put out a podcast of the sermon every week. Go back and listen to that. Today, what I want to do is I want to talk about the Holy Spirit as God's personal empowering presence. God's personal empowering presence and break down that definition of who the Spirit is and what the Spirit is like. And what I hope to do, what I hope happens, is that the truth of what Jesus said about it's better to have the Spirit with us will start to make more sense today. So that's what we're going to be doing today. You guys cool? You guys good? Okay. Bible open to Acts chapter 1. Um, we'll get there eventually. We'll, we'll have to take a long way around to get to Acts chapter 1. But we'll get there eventually, maybe middle, end of the sermon. I don't really know. We'll get there. Just keep it open, right? I want to start here. God is a mystery. He is transcendent. He is beyond language, beyond metaphor, beyond gender. Even when I say he, he's beyond that. He's beyond what we can see and beyond what we can know. Therefore, we cannot know God unless God reveals himself to us. The good news is that he has revealed himself to us, but not in a doctrinal statement, not in a pamphlet or a, a Bible tract, if you ever get one, got one of those. 
What I'm, what I'm saying is that God didn't reveal himself in a clean, I know a lot of you very type A analytical thinkers wish that God revealed himself in a very clean, bullet-pointed PowerPoint-like presentation. Like, this is who I am. Click, and then it's like, it, it all flies on the screen and stuff like that. Like, bullet-pointed, footnoted, all of that stuff. It, God did not reveal himself like that. God revealed himself through a historical document. This historical document right here. This beautiful, messy, large library of writings we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is how God has revealed himself, through the scriptures. And the Old Testament, God has revealed himself through the story of a group of people called Israel. That's how, and eventually they wrote the story down. The Old Testament is their story of how God birthed the nation and promised that through the nation he would bless and redeem the entire world. And it records a lot of their failings. The New Testament is the continued story of the Old Testament, but through the promises of the Old Testament reaching their fulfillment in Jesus, and then Jesus commissioning a new people, the church, made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, to be a people through whom God is working out his reconciliation with the world. I say all that because what we have to do from this beautifully messy and large historical account is we have to take from here what we have, the scriptures, and we have to extract from the scriptures a theological account. We have to extract doctrine from the scriptures. Here's an example of doctrinal statements, especially as it pertains to the Holy Spirit. Here's a couple of contemporary ones. The Holy Spirit is a person, the very person of God. That's Gordon Fee in his book, God's Empowering Presence. The Holy Spirit is a person, the very person of God. Karl Barth, the Holy Spirit is no less and no other than God himself, distinct from him whom Jesus calls Father, distinct also from Jesus himself, yet no less than God and no less than Jesus, God himself, God altogether. Here's, here's a couple of uh, doctor, uh, historical doctrinal statements about the Holy Spirit. Apostles' Creed, very short, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Very helpful. Yes, we do. Apostles' Creed, right? But the Nicene Creed expands on that. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He is spoken through the prophets. Now, what these doctrinal statements are saying is that the Holy Spirit is God, one with God, God to be worshipped, God to be known, God to be glorified, God as the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, we come to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit from the overall flow of the Bible. In other words, we get a clearer and clearer picture of who the Spirit is as the Bible starts to unfold. As we read the Bible, the picture of who the Spirit is begins to unfold for us. For example, we did this last week, Genesis 1-1, page one of the entire Bible, opening sentences. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God introduces himself as God who creates the world in the beginning. And the Spirit hovers over the water. That, that metaphor of the Spirit hovering over the water is the exact same metaphor used later on of God who does the exact same thing over Israel to create the nation of Israel. He hovers over Israel to create the nation of Israel. Same thing. 
In Luke chapter 1, 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. By the way, this is referencing last week. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. This is the angel's word to Mary. How in the world will I have a, 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 a conceive a child? I'm a virgin. This is how. But notice, what I want you to notice is this. The, the title that the Holy Spirit is given here is the Most High, which is the divine title applied to the Spirit. And notice also, the, the Holy Spirit and the power of God is used interchangeably. Not only is the Holy Spirit called the Most High, but he's also called the power of the Most High. Acts chapter 5. Um, this is after Acts. I'm doing, by the way, I, I'm not giving you that much background to these Bible verses. If you're new to the church, you're like, what is happening right now? Just hang on. <laughs> Acts, in Acts chapter 5, um, after the Holy Spirit uh, comes upon the church, um, there's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, and they hold back some stuff. They lied basically to the church and to ultimately to God. And this is what Peter says to them. Ananias, how has Satan so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to just human beings, but to God. You lied to the Holy Spirit. You lied to God. Same thing. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Paul right into the church in Corinth says, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, and this is basically right here a reference to Moses, in Exodus, we read this story, and we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Who is the Lord? The Spirit is the Lord. Now, for some of you who are new to this whole thing, you might be thinking, wait, 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 I thought you guys believed that Jesus is Lord. Yes, we do. But doesn't it also say that God, he is the Lord? Yes. What's going on here? What you're seeing is you're starting to see how the doctrine of the Trinity is formed in the Bible. Which is taken from the unfolding narrative of a historical document that we have that is our Bibles. Now you won't find in the Bible doctrinal statements like God is three in one. Father, Son, and Spirit, all God, three distinct persons, yet one. You will not find that anywhere in the Bible. The Bible is not a doctrinal statement. The Bible is a historical document that we, that we read and learn from who God is. And from that, we deduce that God is one, but yet God is three. So we never, ever, ever find the statement, the doctrinal statement, God is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. Yet, what we do find is God, three in one, spoken of in the same breath in baptism? Matthew 28, 18. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We have the same Trinity, Trinitarian language used in a blessing. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Lord Jesus, God, Spirit. We also have the same Trinitarian language used in gifting when Paul talks about gifts. 1 Corinthians 12.4. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone the same God at work. The Apostle Paul assumes that the one God works as a triune reality. 
the same spirit, the same Lord, the same God. In every way, from the opening line of the Bible, the scriptures present the Holy Spirit alongside the Father and the Son as divine. The, the, the scriptures say that the Holy Spirit is God. Now, the, the, the two biggest errors that have been held in understanding and relating to the Holy Spirit are this. When the Spirit is granted personality but denied divinity, meaning, oh, he's a person, the Holy Spirit's a person, but he's, the per he's not God. The Holy Spirit is like an angel or something like that. The Spirit is regarded less than a divine agent, a created being, and that's not the case. We do not find that in the scriptures. He's not a created being. The second error that we fall into when it comes to the Holy Spirit, and I think this is more our error. I think I'm going to try to explain this. This is more us. The second is when the Spirit is granted divinity but denied personality. Okay, so the Spirit might be divine. The Spirit might be God, but he's like God's energy. When we think of the Holy Spirit as energy and not distinct or divisible, a divisible divine person of God, I think that that second one is probably the most common in our circles. I think in our church. I think even for me, sometimes the, the error that I fall into when I pray for the Spirit to fall upon San Francisco. Every single Sunday I drive from my house, I drive over like, over like Twin Peaks down um, into, uh, into the Castro. And I get that beautiful view of the city. And every single week I ask the Spirit of God to fall. And I, I kind of, I think in my mind, I think about it as like Carl the Fog. Like, like fall, like your, misty, your mistiness, God. Like, like, your, like your misty thing fall or something like that. Or like rain or something. I think of things like that. Like, or the rays of sun. Or I think of the, the Spirit as like a, an energy. I think of the spirit, I think in my mind I can get trapped in thinking of the spirit as, as like the force from Star Wars or an energy like chi that you just channel. And my job with the spirit is to channel the spirit. Like I have to be one with the, with the spirit and channel it in a certain way where I'm like, I become a conduit of like the spirit's power. I think of the spirit like that. Uh, in, in the um, Christian publication, Christianity Today, they did a poll that they called a new poll finds evangelicals' favorite heresies. And one of them is about the Holy Spirit. And they entitled this, May the Force Be With You. And it, it says this, more than half, 51%, said in this poll that the Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being. 7% weren't sure, while only 42% affirmed that the, the Spirit is a person. Now, I don't think this is helped by the metaphors used in the scriptures to describe the spirit. The spirit is described as wind, as fire, as water, as oil. All of these are very impersonal images. We refer to the spirit as an it. May it fall. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. The person of God. God's person. And God's personal presence in us. The very thing that God plants his presence, not his energy in us, not his force in us, himself in us. For example, to show you that the, the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit as a person. Here's a quick, and by the way, this, this slide will be on our website. So you don't have to write all these verses down, but check this out. The Spirit is a person in that he, the Spirit speaks and sends. The Spirit speaks as a person. 
sends as a person. The Holy Spirit chooses as a person. Teaches, gives. The Holy Spirit can be lied to and tested. The Holy Spirit can be resisted. The Holy Spirit guides. The Holy Spirit intercedes. The Holy Spirit testifies. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit can be insulted. The Holy Spirit can be blasphemed. The Holy Spirit is a person. You can't do this stuff to a force. You can't do this stuff to an energy. All you can do to the energy is like, is like be in disturbance with it or like channel it. That's not what the Spirit is. The Spirit is not a force. The Spirit is not an energy. The Spirit is the person of God himself. However, when I say the Holy Spirit is not an it, I don't automatically mean that the Spirit is a he. I don't mean the Spirit is male. God is neither male nor female. But with the Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, actually the most common Hebrew word for spirit in the Old Testament is ruah, which is a feminine word. The basic Greek word pneuma is, in the New Testament is neuter, meaning it's neither masculine nor feminine. When John refers to the Spirit as a paraclete, that word is masculine. But when Paul refers to the Spirit in Romans 8, it's a picture of the Holy Spirit as a mother giving birth to a child. So the Holy Spirit actually has more feminine-like qualities than, than you might imagine. I honestly don't know where to go from there. The Holy Spirit is not a force or an energy, but a person. And if the Holy Spirit is a person, he's a person, she's a person, I wouldn't say he or she, it's the Spirit of God, the person of God himself. It's important to understand that God is neither male nor female, though he reveals himself in male and female characteristics. Why, I asked uh, a theologian, um, Scott McKnight, this last week, I emailed him. I'm like, why? Why? Can I call the Holy Spirit female? Am I allowed to do that? And he wrote this really great email back to me. And he said, I don't know why. God has revealed himself in both male and female characteristics. I know, we don't know why. I mean, there can be practical reasons why. But we don't really know why Jesus was manifested as male. But God has, before Jesus was male, he was neither male nor female. And after Jesus... In his ascended body, he is neither male nor female. He's tra- God transcends gender. He is neither male nor female and has revealed himself to us as male and female. So if the spirit is not an energy but a person, if the Holy Spirit is, is the person of God himself, then it's important to understand that the spirit of God, and this is, this is I think, a really important point, is not inferior to the Son of God. The Holy Spirit is not inferior. You can't think of the Holy Spirit as third in importance. It's like father, most, son, second, spirit, third. Jesus was completely dependent upon the spirit in his earthly life. He was born of the spirit, then anointed by the spirit at baptism, then empowered by the spirit, then raised from the dead by the spirit. And the spirit now is completely dependent on Jesus. Jesus says this in John 16. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will only speak what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. So in this beautiful way, this Jesus, when Jesus becomes human, he completely submits to the spirit. 
And every, the way he was born, the way he did minute, every single thing, he was a complete human that completely was dependent on the Spirit. And the Spirit, likewise, now is completely dependent on Jesus, telling his church what to do, what to think, what to say. So what we have here at the very heart of the Trinity is deep relational reciprocity between them. Father, Son, and Spirit, preferring one another, loving each other, sending each other. However, the Western church has a long tradition of practically subordinating, depersonalizing, and marginalizing the role of the Spirit in the church. And the reason why the church does this is because it's safer this way. It's much safer to keep the Holy Spirit in the Bible than keep the, put, allow the Holy Spirit to be in the church. I mean, it's good to be saved. It's good, good to know that Jesus has, uh, has forgiven our sins and cleansed us from guilt. But the Spirit is not tameable. You cannot tame the Spirit. The descriptions of the Spirit are wind, fire. Like, those things aren't tameable. The descriptions of wind, you can't control it. You can't contain it. Jesus says so much when he's talking to Nicodemus. He says, the Spirit of God blows where it pleases. And you don't know where it comes from, where it goes. So is everyone born of the Spirit? Jesus is saying you can't contain the Spirit. And this is, the, I think this is the, the problem that we have with the Spirit is that he's like, well, if we allow the Spirit to come upon us or to fill us or to pour out him, what will happen? And the answer is, I don't know. I think what will happen is that our church will start to look like the Bible. I think that's the kind of stuff that happens. The kind of stuff that happens when the kingdom of God breaks in is the kind of stuff that happens, but I think we're all a little afraid of that. The Bible is really actually centered around two sendings, the sending of the Son and the sending of the Spirit. We talk a lot about the sending of the Son, but the sending of the Spirit is just as important. The sending of the Son was to show us the Father and make a way for us to know God so that every single one of us would know what God is like, to receive a new heart, to be redeemed by God, and that, the, that Jesus would usher in the new age of the Spirit. But Jesus was going on, especially at, towards the end of his life, was going on and on and on about the Spirit coming. The second sending, not only that the, the, the Father send the Son, but the Son and the, and the Father were going to send the Spirit. And so now we come to Acts 1. Are you there? Acts 1. Look at this. In my former book, oh, by the way, this uh, book is written by, um, by Luke. His first book is called Luke. His second one's called Acts, okay? In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Underline the word began. That's supposed to say he began to do and teach. And what I'm about to write to you right now is everything Jesus continues to do and teach. Though he's not physically here, but he does it through his spirit. Do you get what, you get what he's saying? Verse 2, until the day he was taken through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. By the way, this is not on the screen. Sorry. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive, appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with his disciples, Jesus gave them this command. Jesus said this to his disciples, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized you with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Wait. I know I breathed on you and you received the Holy Spirit. I know that through my death I've released the Holy Spirit. But wait, the Spirit is going to come upon you. Don't leave. You need the Spirit to come upon you. You need the Spirit to anoint you. You need the Spirit. You need the Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 1. Turn over. 
scroll, whatever you do. When the day of Pentecost came, those people were all together, about 120 of them were all together in one place. Suddenly, the sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire, there it is, wind and fire, that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. At this moment, they are filled with the Spirit. One of the, one of the, the results of them being filled with the Spirit is that they spoke in other tongues. We'll get there. We'll get there in our teaching. We'll talk about this. But he, here's the thing. When the Spirit comes upon us, and this is where I think, I think this is where we're at as a church. We can do the theology well. Even when we started the last Sunday's teaching, I knew that our church is very cerebral. I know our church, our church needs to like sh show me in the scriptures that this is true. And so we spent a lot of time in the Bible. And I can show you that Jesus is God. I can show you where, how Jesus is the person of God. I can show you where Jesus is the power of God. I can show you where the Spirit is the power of God. I can show you these things. But I think there are a lot of us that are very, very afraid when it comes to Spirit. Because we know the Spirit is God's empowering presence. And I will say this, the Holy Spirit is no tame spirit. He is not the shy member of the Trinity, as he's been called. He's not that the Spirit doesn't say much or do much. He's not the shy member. That's not true. See, when the people of God grow comfortable, when we grow self-satisfied, when we think that we have things pretty much nailed down in our Christian life, when the call of God's mission to the whole world, especially to the broken and poor, recedes, it's the tendency of the Spirit to shake up the church, to dislodge it from its ease and its self-satisfaction. The Holy Spirit is not shy. The Holy Spirit moves in us and moves us and presses us towards new creation always. We can resist that, but this is what the Spirit of God does in us. He pushes us toward like untransformed areas in our lives, the, the, the places that we don't like to go to, the untransformed areas, the Holy Spirit presses into those places. The, the Holy Spirit in us groans in us toward newness of life. See, the problem we might have with the Spirit, whether we know it or not, if we were honest, what I have problems with still is that the Spirit of God, if this is the Spirit, the, the personal, real presence of God, the person of God living in us, that's pretty invasive. God's Spirit living in us is invasive. Think about that. I think we can all, we can keep Jesus at a distance. Jesus, could you forgive me of my sin? Yeah, I can forgive you. Oh, great. Thank you. Can you make guilt go away? And could you like move me toward a better version of myself? Yes. I love this religion thing. This is really good. But what if Jesus said, and I'm going to live in you, and I'm going to start pushing out all the false self that, that you have in you, all the ways that are not aligned to my kingdom, and I'm going to slowly push those away, maybe sometimes not so slowly, and I'm going to, I'm going to indwell you. You're like, whoa, that's kind of invasive. That's like, this is like my body. Like you can't just like come into my body. A sticking point when it comes to our understanding of the Holy Spirit is that humans are, are not open to this invasive, transcending, and transforming presence of the Spirit in our lives. And the reason is, is we don't want, we'd rather stay the way we are, or we'd rather control who we want to become. Like we want to become a certain kind of person, but we want to control how we get there. And Jesus was a spirit-filled human, and he, I, and he, Jesus was not, 
Jesus was all human like we're all human. The thing that Jesus had going for him was that he was always open, wide open to the Spirit, and we are not. I mean, are you open to the Spirit? If we're open to the Spirit of God in us, God wants to pour out his Spirit on us. Like, he, he wants to pour out his Spirit. Isaiah 44, 3. For I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. I want to pour out my spirit. Joel 2.28. And afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Acts 2.32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and he has poured out what you now see and hear. This is, this is uh, Peter talking about what happened in Pentecost. What, what's going on here? Are you guys drunk? It's like early in the morning. No, we're not drunk. What happened here is the Spirit got poured out. That's what happened. Acts 10, 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. So there was this whole group of people that, that, that the Jews were like, well, the Spirit of God can't go to them, and the Spirit of God does go to them, because the Spirit wants to pour out his Spirit on all people. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Christ Jesus, our Savior. Jesus comes, saves us, and the Spirit of God is then allowed to be poured out into us. Romans 5.2, we boast in the hope and the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is God's desire for his church. Would you be open to receiving my spirit? Would you be open to receiving the spirit to be poured out on you? to be poured out on your church, to be poured out on you. This is what God wants to do. He doesn't want to give his spirit himself in small measure. He wants all of himself to be brought into all of you, all of it. Now just think, let's just imagine for a second that the, that the, the spirit of, of Michael Jackson was poured out on us. Come on, someone? What would you, what would you expect? I mean, I would expect way more rhythm, like I would have insane rhythm, musical timing, way better fashion, a better voice. I would, I would, I would, if the spirit of Michael Jackson came upon, I would imagine something different about me as it pertained to music or fashion or like the way I carried my, something. Sparkly socks, remember those? Oh man. I, he was my, like grew up, he was my idol. Anyway, I loved him. So if, if that, if that happened, you would, ex you, would say, you would probably say that the fruit of the spirit of Michael Jackson is like, you know, dancing and singing and musical. Do you get what I'm saying? If the spirit of the living God filled you, you would become like God. Do you, do you see here? And I think that's what we're really afraid of. 
I think some of us are like, but will, will I be me? Will I, will I still be me? Well, yeah. You'll, but I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I think some of us don't even know what that even means. To be honest, like, what does it even mean to be you? And I think we don't really discover that until the Spirit of God fills us. See, the Bible says that Adam and Eve were just, um, were just dirt, and God fashioned them, and they were nothing. And then God breathed on them, and they were, give, they were animated. Breath, ruah, wind, same, same word. Breathe, spirit. And they became living beings. And we're so cut off to that. And we think, I just need to go find myself. You, won't, you, you will not ever find yourself. You're dead. You're dead. You can't. You need the spirit of God to breathe in you. I hope you're clapping for the Spirit of God, not the fact that people are dead. So anyway, <laughs> you, you, need, you need God to breathe in you, his Spirit. And by that, you will, you, will, you will display not only just the attributes of God, but I think you'll start displaying the attributes of what's truly you. What's truly you? We need the Spirit. The Spirit is God. The Spirit is God's presence. The Spirit is God's personal presence. The Spirit is God's empowering. It's how God empowers us for mission. Do you want the Spirit poured out? Do you want the Spirit poured out on you? And so the question that I've been asking myself is, why do you want the Spirit? Why do I and why have we as a church been praying? Why have I prayed for a long time, Spirit of God be poured out on our church. Spirit of God be poured out in our city. Why? And I, as I've been thinking about that, I think I honestly, my confession is I still think there's parts of a residue that think of the spirit as a force or energy. I think that if the spirit comes in, everyone will like all of a sudden like start flowing in the energy and the spirit and all this stuff will start happening. But what we're actually saying is when we want the spirit, we want the person of God. That's what we're saying. We want the person of God. But the thing is we don't want to make room for that. We don't want to make room for the person of God. We want, we'd much rather it be like an energy drink that we drink it and we're like, boom, we're like, oh my gosh, I feel the energy now. Instead of like making room for a person. And I think some of us, and this even goes to like, you know, how we serve the world. Most of us would much rather write a check. We'd much rather give money, right? And so in Acts 8, the same thing happens. The guy named Simon, who is, ended up being a sorcerer, but that's a different part of the story. Simon notices uh, the, 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 the disciples moving in the power of the Spirit and Peter started praying for people to receive the Spirit and they received the Spirit and all this wonderful things start happening and Simon goes up to Peter and he's like, hey, can I, can I buy that? He literally wants to buy that. Can I buy that power you have? I want to do that. I want to do what you're doing. Could I, can I purchase that? And Peter's like, what are you, what? No, you can't buy this. May, may your money perish with you. This is God's gift. You can't purchase it with money. I think a lot of us just want to like, what's the quick thing I do to get the spirit? What do I have to do quickly? To buy it, I write a check, donate more, give more. Like what do I have to do? You can't buy this thing. It's a gift of God. All you can do is receive it. All you can do is receive the spirit. How do you receive it? This is a word that one of the elders, Joe, gave last Sunday. And I want to read it to you in Luke chapter 11. I remember when I first read this at face value, how, how it blew my mind. Jesus says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. 
Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks the door will be opened. That is so, that, take that, like, you want to take that to the bank. Like, God says, if I ask, I'll receive, I'll seek, I'll just keep persisting. And so then Jesus shares a parable. Which of you fathers, if your son asked for a fish, would give him a snake instead? What dad does that? Or if he asked for an A, would give him a scorpion? If you then, though you're evil, because dads do some crappy stuff. That's what Jesus is saying. Some dads are kind of evil, but they still wouldn't do that, right? How much more, though you're evil, if then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So I think what Jesus is saying here is, ask, seek, and knock. We're like, okay, I'm going to ask. I'm going to seek. I'm gonna ha- I have so many things to ask God for. I have so many things to seek God for. I have so many things to knock for. What Jesus is saying is the ask under the ask or the knock under the knock or the seeking under the seeking is always really the spirit. Like what we're really, really asking for, what we really, really long for is the Holy Spirit. That's what we really need. That's what we really want. In the book, Flame of Love, A Theology of the Spirit, the author says, only by attending to the spirit are we going to be able to move beyond sterile, rationalistic, powerless religion and recover the intimacy with God our generation longs for. Under all of the stuff that you really want, all the things you're going to ask God for, all is really is the person of the Spirit that Jesus has made a way for through dying on a cross for us. Dying on a cross, making a way that the Spirit of God can live in us. The personal presence of God living in us. This has insane implications on holiness, on sexuality, on what we do with our bodies. Specifically, I think, specifically Paul points to sexuality. That has huge implications. The, the, the God lives in you. Not, like, not a force, not an energy, but the person of God lives in you. Therefore, honor God with your body. So we have to make room for this. And so as we close, I want, I, want to, I want there to be space in here to do that. Would you stand with me as we pray?